Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word. Today, we're talking about count all. Count all faith to know Jesus Christ. We're in the third chapter of Philippians, and uh, that's where we'll be in verses 1 through 11. I want to begin by reading that, and then we'll go from there. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Has anyone showed you how to count 11 fingers? I know this sounds awkward coming from a guy from Arkansas. But I want to show you this trick. I want you to take your hands and put them in front of you like this. Are you ready? Now, here we go. Okay? One, two, skip these three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Welcome to Arkansas. Right? I know you questioned my ability to count. And yet some of you are going to be doing this throughout the whole service going, how did he do that? It is a simple trick. But it shows us how big mistakes can get made when we count incorrectly. Today we're going to see that how you count your life is really important. And that's what we see in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Here's what I want you to see and to walk away with today. Christians count all of life by faith to know God and become like Jesus. Christians count all of life by faith to know God and become 
like Jesus. Now let's think about where we are in the text when we come to verse 1 of Philippians 3. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He calls them to rejoice. And, and Paul is bringing us to a crescendo in his teaching to help us understand why and how it is that we can rejoice. The first two chapters, he's gone back and walked through memories of, of, of partnership in the gospel and of partaking in the gospel and personal change by the gospel. And he's talked about all of these things that has helped them say, you know, if we remember all of these things, we can rejoice in Christ. But in chapter three, he makes a decisive shift. He starts with this and he says finally rejoice in the Lord he's telling them to lead their life by rejoicing not wait until everything gets aligned to rejoice you see this is not an admonition to some kind of superficial cheerfulness that's arguing that we should all be morning personality kind of people that that just closes its eyes to the surrounding circumstance Rather, he's saying that a positive Christian attitude of joy finds outward expression in life and that it is realistically taking into account all of the adverse circumstances, all of the trials, and all of the pressures through which they have been called to pass. In other words, he's saying Christians look at life no matter what it holds and rejoice in the Lord because of who we have found in the Lord Jesus. When a storm arises at sea and the waves begin to swell, a ship's captain must make a strategic decision for how it is that he will steer the ship into the storm. If he waits until he gets into the storm, it will be too late. He must make a decision before the storm reaches him. Now, sometimes it may be possible to sail around the storm and avoid it altogether, or at other times it may be okay or convenient to just sail directly away from the storm and avoid it altogether. But very often, it's neither possible to run from it or to avoid it at all. And so that's where the decision must be made. How will we address the storm and the rough seas? Because in order for the ship to survive, you cannot sail sideways with the storm. Sailing sideways is a defeat before the storm ever reaches you. The best way to control a ship in the storm is to turn directly into it and sail directly into it. That way you can take every power and ability of steering of the ship and control it as you move in to the difficulty of the rough seas. You see, what Paul is doing at the beginning of chapter 3 <clears throat> is he is telling us that rejoicing is the disposition and the expression for how a Christian moves forward in life, regardless of our situation. Because in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need to rejoice, and this sets our heart and our mind to look to him at all times, in all circumstances, as we continue in life. Now, the way that Paul runs at this today provides for us an explanation of how it is that we live daily by this rejoicing, by looking at life and not trying to avoid it or escape it or just try to skirt around it, but rather turning into it as a Christian and walking by faith and living in such a way that we can rejoice in Christ. And he gives us two admonitions and one exhortation. And that's what I want us to look at for us to know 
God. Verses 2 and 3, he begins by warning, look out for false worship. Look out for false worship. Every form that claims something but does not know the power of God in it. Now, he begins this admonition, if you will, this word of strong caution by stating three times, look out, look out, look out. He's not just saying, hey, y'all be careful now, you hear? It's not just this customary off-sending of blessing, but rather it's a very strong word where he is emphasizing to them their vigilance for their own life, how they must take guard against these things and what it is that must be guarded against. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, he says. Now, understand, first century may or may not have had a feral animal issue. I don't know. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. These are all references to the same big group of people and subsets within them. He's referring to religious people. You see, so often in Christianity, we hold the mindset that the greatest threat to Christianity is the darkness that remains in the world. But that's not true. That's not true. It never has been. And it's not the case now. Paul's referring to religious people who claim right worship, but that stand in direct opposition to the gospel. You see, dogs were those people who basically followed them around and antagonized them and harassed them, that threatened and intimidated them. When you see Jesus Christ in the gospels walking on the earth, there was always a set of Jewish leaders who had hired or were personally present to stir up the crowds such that the same crowds that cried Hosanna when he entered town uh, at the first of the week were the ones crying crucify him when they were asking Jesus or Barabbas by the end of the week. These are the dogs who continued to follow Paul, antagonizing, harassing, threatening. Everywhere he went, there was a set subsect of groupies that would riot, that would demonstrate, and try to get him arrested. And often they would do their best, and they were pretty effective at times. Paul says, look out for the evildoers. These are the people who maliciously use God's name, but use it to pursue their own gain, their own favor, and their own end. Surely we could see today those who do this as well, who use the name of Christ, of God, of Jesus, and all of the Christian lingo. But if you follow the trail, you don't get to God. And then he said, those who mutilate the flesh, those who practice useless acts, impose useless practices and activities, but for no good purpose. You see, Paul was referring to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And it causes us to look at those who are religious leaders today in such a way that we too must be careful, not to just be suspicious of all, but to understand how to discern among all. That's the point. All three are the people who, vigil, or who should be vigilantly guarded against both in faith and the doctrines and the teachings that they are espousing and the practices that they are demanding. And it's as important for us today as it was in the first century. You see, friends, the greatest threat to Christianity is false worship. 
that skews and deceives, but does it all in the name of Christianity. Our threat is from within far more than from the outside. And Paul confronts these religious practices by pointing to true worshipers. He says this, we are the circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, circumcision was, was the true sign in the Old Testament that was given of the people of God. But when Paul says we are the circumcision, he's making the argument that these are all false and deceptive leaders doing Satan's bidding on the earth. But he says we are the true followers of God. We're the true worshipers because we represent God's true covenant and even the one that was given in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was practiced, but it was never practiced for its value or sake alone. It always pointed to a future reality. And within the Old Testament, it came to be understood as being transferred and in the ethical sense as pointing to not just a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. That's why God from the beginning commanded his people, circumcise your hearts. Cut off the, the rough part, the, 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 the packing up or the pounding, compounding parts that are separating you from me, that are causing you to doubt and to speculate about my goodness, that are causing you to live in unbelief. And this is what Paul is arguing for here. Because true circumcision is one, even in the Old Testament, where complete obedience was given to the commands of the Lord's, of the the Lord and that's what it meant to live in covenant with God and so circumcision was the sign of those who claimed God's promise in Abraham but because of Jesus circumcision was no longer of the flesh it was done by the spirit of the heart so that we could repent and receive salvation in Christ Paul argues true worshipers worship from the heart by the Holy Spirit, to glory in the finished work of Jesus Christ with no confidence in the flesh. You see, friends, religion that honors God is never about outward performance. It is inward alignment of the heart. So Paul says this, Bark away, you mangy mutts. Scheme and devise all you want, you workers and advocates of Satan. Destroy one another in grand displays, if you will, by your religious false sacrifice. But if you are of Christ, and if the Spirit of God has circumcised your heart to know the true God, worship Him in the glory of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. This is what it means to know God. You see, the true worshiper draws all strength from Jesus by the gospel in order to guard against the evil attacks around us and the prideful self-righteousness that remains within us. Today, he would say to us, I believe, that we still must vigilantly guard, look out, look out, look out. And maybe today, it's not a matter of the same forms of deception and evil doing of that day, but they're no less dangerous to deceive us and to skew us. 
I believe he would say to us today, look out for the therapeutic, emotionalistic, experientialistic, yes, that's a word, selfology. Anything that points to self as the center of all being and life, that heralds anything from God, but that always comes back to serving self and self alone. Look out, look out, look out. Because it is so prevalent, it is so popular, and there is such a mass movement in that direction, but it is counter to the gospel. Look out, Christian, for all the false, deceptive, and destructive substitutes that claim but know nothing of God's true saving power. And so Paul moves from outward threats to what actually fuels those outward threats, confidence in self. And so in verses 4 through 6, he offers a second admonition. He says, refuse to put confidence in the flesh. Refuse to put your confidence in your flesh. In other words, the aspects of this physical life that we can observe, that we can accomplish, and that we can herald. He says that, that it only shows the, the vanity of confidence in self when we herald these things. Look at verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You want to talk religious smack? I'll go toe-to-toe with you and you'll lose. That's what he said. I, I mean, he, he's not even offering competition. He's saying, I'll crush you if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more, he says. So let's get it on. Let's, let's put it out there. Let's go for it. He says this of his being or his heritage, his lineage of birth. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, there isn't anything about my lineage that is not pristine. Perfection in eyes of the law. Often these verses are referred to as Paul's resume, born of the highest regard in the Jewish heritage. And Paul's saying that was for naught. But he was also held in the highest regard in terms of education and accomplishment as a Jew. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, which that was the primo cream of the crop in religious standings in the first century Jewish religion. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, before God radically saved him on the road to Damascus, Paul's name was considered Saul, and God met a man who went by his own zeal and requested from the Roman government legal authority to incarcerate and to execute people who claimed to be followers of the way because they were a threat to the Roman government. He was a lawyer par excellence that didn't know how to lose any case because his argument was always airtight, and the Roman government would bestow upon him the ability even to take a life if it was a threat to their rule of law and that's what Saul did he said I've killed more Christians than any of you you think you're bad I've got a record of all of them as to righteousness under the law listen to this here's what Paul said I'm blameless wow 
And yet that's what he said. See, he had superior reason to put confidence in the flesh according to his argument and according to their argument. Here's what Paul says. It's useless, all of it. No one gains anything in standing with God by natural lineage, moral nature, or personal achievement. You see, confidence in the flesh can be any manner or measure of personal merit or meritorious achievement, but it never adds anything to our standing before God. Listen, I'm a man who has enjoyed uh, three prior generations of Christian faith in my family. I knew three of my great-grandparents, a great-grandmother and grandfather, and then another great-grandmother who were all believers in Jesus Christ. And, And as I was being reared, they spoiled me absolutely, but they also told me to love Jesus and help me with that. My grandparents, two grandparents on my mother's side and my grandmother on my dad's side, faithful believers all my life. I didn't know anything else. They went to church. They were part of the church. They lived out their faith daily in their work and in their family life. Never saw anything that competed with that. Aunts and uncles and cousins who all became faithful followers of Jesus Christ. My parents, many of you know, I never knew a day without the love and the grace of God in a home, even though I spent years rejecting it in my own life. But even my siblings, I can remember when they all became Christians. But listen, none of this added anything to my standing with God. All the little merit badges I earned for remembering Bible verses and all the good deeds all the speech competitions that I won, all the camps that I went to and the retreats that I was part of and all the Bible studies that I've attended, my seminary education and my college education, none of this does anything for standing with God, friends. None of it. All my participation in the church, I kid that I was attending church for Nine full months before I was ever born. Why? Because that's where we lived. But they had nothing. You see, even an advanced ability to think and talk quickly on my feet, what my elementary school teachers always told me was going to be the down demise of my life. They lied. I make a living by talking. If they could have only had a vision for what I was trying to purport in grade school. I talk about deportment now and people are like, what? Can we use that word? Is that an okay word to use? It means nothing, friends. Not even the greatest sermons I preach. I'm not asking you to evaluate them on the fly here. I'm just telling you. There is no measure of my activity even today, that improves my standing with God. You see, Paul does not list his heritage to win the argument, though he does decidedly here. He lists it to show how completely inept it was to make any spiritual significance in his life without Christ. By it, he gained great prominence in Jewish standing, religious standing, You might even say he developed a massive grand platform, but it did nothing for him in his standing with God. More often than not, the greatest threat 
to derail your faith will never come from outside opposition, but inward deception that glorifies self. And Paul says to this threat, put no confidence in the flesh. Friends, let me bring it to today. Beware of Christian platforms. Beware. In the strongest, most vigilant sense, guard yourself against the credentials that people purport themselves by. Speakers, even preachers, radio, TV, podcast, whatever it may be, personalities and publishers. It doesn't matter how big their platform, that means zilcho, but it can be the very ideology that rationalizes what will deceive you if Christ is not at the center of everything they are providing for you. Refuse, Christian, to put any confidence in the flesh, knowing that only by faith in God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ can anyone know God. And so we look out for the danger of false worship. We watch out for the deception of trusting, having any confidence in our flesh. But instead, Paul exhorts, beginning in verse 7 through verse 11, count all of life by faith to know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7 with me again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain counted as loss. Paul says that whatever gain his flesh may have added, he counted it as loss because of what he had come to know of God in Jesus Christ. You see, that, that verb for count is an action that is faith-fueled, where we consider all of who we are and what we have done, and we move it all from the asset column of our life to the liability column. That's what I call Christian life accounting by faith. We count all of life as loss and useless and move it from our asset column to our liability column. That's what Paul is teaching us. Why do we do this? Because of the immeasurable riches of God in Jesus Christ. To know God. That's what he said. He said, I counted everything as loss because of the surpass passing worth of knowing Christ. What does that worth surpass? Everything that we have heaped up in the flesh. Everything that we have heaped up in our accomplishment. Everything that we have heaped up because of who we are. You see, knowing God in Jesus Christ is immeasurable in every way. Not only over everything of this world and every one of this world, but even over the knowledge of self. Christ is immeasurable in comparison to us. There is nothing that compares with him. There is surely nothing that competes with him. He is a surpassing glory of all others. And you see, friends, the way we count our life by faith makes all the difference. We 
gain Christ by faith alone, when we count everything as lost, when we count it as worthless in comparison to knowing his surpassing glory. And this counting is is not of our own doing, but it's by the revelation of God's surpassing glory. When he opens the eyes of our heart and the eyes of our soul to see the glory of Jesus Christ through the gospel message revealed to us, then our hearts are open so that we can count our lives as nothing like his and therefore lost and useless. The glory of Jesus Christ is our motivation. This is not a religious act that we do. Lord, Do you see me moving everything for you? Here it goes. You see inch by inch. You'll never get it there, friends. It's like the old typewriters. You'll hit there and it'll go right back immediately. But because when we see Christ by faith, the glory of Jesus becomes our motivation to move it all. Nothing competes, nothing compares. Jesus' glory is surpassing in every way, in might, in power, in beauty, in wisdom, in love. Friends, this is no risky proposition of a gamble. It is an absolute, eternal, sure guarantee. And I say this today for this reason, because some of you walked in today and you're still shopping and you're still comparing. You want the best deal. You want to get it all for the lowest cost. I get that. I get that. But you will never get God. You will not know God if that's the way you count your life before him. Christians count our life as loss because nothing compares to Jesus. And the one who by faith counts their life in this way, Paul says, gains Jesus' righteousness. That's what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean we become perfect. It means his perfection is counted as our own. The reason in Christian life accounting that we take everything that we might count as our asset and move it to the liability side is because when we pile it up here, we realize God's been piling it up here already. And everything God's putting in on top is all from Christ and not of us. We get credited with Jesus' righteousness. We do not have to measure up. We don't have to earn anything. We can cease from our striving. We give up every useless asset of self-righteousness in order to gain Christ and to be found in him. The gospel tells us that when God looks on this life because of faith in him and because of the righteousness of Christ put on me, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and he is pleased with that sacrifice and he is pleased to welcome Lane Harrison into his eternal kingdom and it is the same with you friends he supplies what our striving and what our earning and what our achieving always fails to supply when we are found in Christ it is his righteousness that is accredited to the one who by faith has received him. The fallacy of self-righteousness is always washed away when by faith we count our life as nothing to gain Jesus' righteousness and be found in him. You want to give up your nothing and take on God's everything? You're going to have to count your life by faith in Christ. The one who by faith counts their life in this way comes to know God. That's what salvation in the Bible is all about, friends. The knowledge of salvation as Luke responds or as Luke identifies it is knowing God. Paul says in Galatians 4 9 that we we come to know God and, and, and we are known by God. When God sees 
this sin-stained sinner. He knows me. Not because of what I've done, even for him. Not because of who I am. But because of what he's done for me in Jesus Christ. To gain is to have all of Christ as our prevailing merit. His becomes ours. It's to know him in intimacy of personal trust and surrender because we know in relationship his saving benefits. Counting life by faith as loss and nothing brings us into the full knowledge of God every time we make a transaction to move all of who we are out of the asset and into the liability column. God pours in the very favor of Jesus Christ back up on us in the full knowledge of who he is that is ever deeper, ever more glorious in every way. And this knowledge of God draws us ever more closely into him so that we share in his suffering, so that we become like Jesus and ultimately we attain. We attain to the resurrection of the dead just like Jesus did. We pass from death to life. This is Christian life accounting. We count all of life in the liability column. And God credits all of Jesus into our asset column. What a power we receive. What a power we receive from knowing God when we count our life as lost to know his power over sin, over death, hell and the grave. And friends, I'm going to show you one more thing and I'll be done. Go back to verse 8 and verse 9 with me. Paul says two things, excuse me, just verse 8. He says this, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's all of his pluses, if you will. The things that would be to his benefit. But, but Lane, what about the minuses? What about the negatives? Well, when we count everything as lost that are the pluses because of his surpassing worth, he also says this, for his sake. Don't miss that. This is for Christ's sake because you'll never get there self-justifying it. But for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That means worthless. Listen to me, friends. We live in a day and time when the culture at large And the compounding ideology tells you, hold your offenses close to your chest. Look at all the ways you've been victimized, that people have done you wrong, that people have offended you. Look at even, I'll add to this, all the sins that you have done and hold to them because that's who you really are. And Paul says, not a one of them is true of us because of Christ. When he washes your sins away, he separates you from them as far as the east is from the west. But let me return to this other. What about the sins committed against me? What about when people have wronged me, Pastor? What about when they have said things against me? What about when they have done things that hurt me? Listen to me. I'm not removing the need for moral justice in the world and for us as Christians to be advocates and pursuants and encouragers of moral justice. I'm speaking of spiritual truths about the reality of your life. You don't have to hold the hurt. You don't have to hold the wrongdoing. You don't have to hold the deep inner wounds. Christ wants to heal every bit of that in you. 
And I can't speak to the time frame within which he will do it, but I can speak to the nature with which it will be done. It will be complete. And in a world that wants to make us all victims, that is nothing greater than a self-ideology that damns equal to a self-righteousness. Do not buy it. Christ is sufficient. You say, what? They did that on purpose, God. But because of your grace in Jesus Christ, I'll forgive them because you forgave me. There will never be an evil committed against a person nor an amount of evils committed against a person in this world that was greater than the evil committed against Jesus Christ. And if Jesus can say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He's got the power to give us the same forgiveness in our life. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy, friends. I'm pleading with you to trust him. Because it'll be your own wounds, your own griefs, your own heartaches that cause you to stay away from God. And that is not the heart of Christ. It is neither ours to expedite it in the healing, yes, specifically with grief, but with other hurts and wounds of victimization in this world. It may take a long time, but listen, Christ will walk with you every day. And if you think you're so bad that you want to get there faster, let me tell you this, it's not yours to expedite the time process either. Christ is greater than the hurt that you hold and you carry if you will trust him. I've seen it over and over in others and in my own life. What a power we receive from knowing God. We count our life as loss and rubbish to know his power over sin, over death, over hell. In the grave. I plead with you today. See the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ for your life. And believe. For joy from God lasts through every circumstance. Because his resurrection power sources life. At all times knowing him. Do you know God? Are you counting your life by the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.